Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's voice of reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Politicians and political parties like to talk at and sometimes even talk down to the American people. But based on what the American people are actually saying, they may want to talk less and listen more. Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. One of the things that's been most fascinating to me over the last several years has been looking at how political parties and politicians are framing their conversations. And so often they are literally talking at, or in more often than not, talking down to the American people as if they know better. It's part of this elite 1% that thinks they know what the American people think, what they're happy with, what they need, because they're smart and they know better. The reality is quite different. And there's actually some new data out from Gallup. Uh, Gallup has been studying for decades now public satisfaction on 29 different aspects of life here in the United States, policy areas within the United States. And it's amazing to me that the politicians and the political parties don't seem to want to actually listen to what the American people are saying. But then they come out with these campaigns. They come out with messaging. They go on these tours and they're saying things that are not congruent with what the American people are actually living. And I think if they would actually begin not with what policy do we want to push through or what do we actually believe or what is it that is our agenda and begin from a different place. I know this is radical. If you actually start by listening to the American people, it usually leads you to the right place. And so let's look at where the American people actually are. So this is what Gallup does. They do this every year and they go through 29 different aspects of what's going on here in the United States, what the American people actually think or how satisfied they are with certain aspects of government or life in America. And the latest polling and the latest data that has come out from Gallup paints an interesting picture. And I don't care if you're part of Team Biden and the Democrats. I don't care if you're part of the Republicans or anywhere in between. You have to listen to what the American people are saying. And these are just the numbers. This is not my perspective. This is not my opinion. We're going to just stick with the numbers today. So here's what the numbers are saying. And you can see where both Democrats and Republicans get wildly off base because they're going on what they think the American people want or what they believe the American people are feeling or what they want the American people to be thinking or feeling. And those things are not always the same. So in this, these 29 areas uh, over the last three years, so this would cover the context of the Biden administration. And again, they've been doing this for decades, so we can go back even further into data uh, and look at that. But the interesting thing to me is that when you look at the satisfaction in these 29 particular areas, uh, 12 out of the 29 have declined during the last three years. Now, they may be accurate or not, but this is what the American people are feeling. Perception is reality, especially when it comes to politics. And so you have to at least take a listen and then adjust accordingly. 
Some of these were a little surprising to me. Some areas where satisfaction has gone down and some areas where satisfaction has gone up uh, that is, is a little bit interesting. So let's start with these areas, these 12 areas where satisfaction has gone down and gone down significantly. Some of these drops have been uh, double digit, 12 plus percentage points between January of 2021 and January of 2024. And uh, so here they are. Uh, these are areas where the public, the American people, have decreased satisfaction. So are you satisfied, not satisfied with the nation's military strength and preparedness? That has dropped by 12% from twenty one, January of 2021 to today. Uh, this was interesting. Uh, satisfied, dissatisfied with the position of women in this nation. That's actually dropped by 5%. Quality of medical care in the nation has gone from 53% down to 44%, so a nine-point drop. State of the economy, this is probably the least surprising of them all. Uh, Only 36% of Americans are satisfied with the nation's economy right now, down uh, down seven points from where it was uh, three years ago. And you can go on into energy policy, uh, laws and uh, uh, policies on guns, Uh, down double digits. Immigration, obviously a big issue today. Nobody's satisfied with that. 28% of the country is satisfied with what's happening in terms of immigration policy. Government regulation, also down 30, only 30% of Americans are satisfied with what's being done in that space. Uh, Income and wealth distribution, just 29% think are satisfied with that. Uh, Here's the non-shocker of all non-shockers. Actually, this is a little shocking. Only 29% of Americans are uh, not happy or satisfied with how much they pay in federal taxes. Uh, I actually thought that would be a a different number because I don't think anybody's really satisfied with how much they have to pay in taxes. So as we look at all of those areas, uh, including uh, abortion policies, uh, only 25% of Americans are satisfied with where we are there. Uh, So all of those are areas that are down. And so again, regardless of how you feel about those particular policies, The American people are not satisfied and their satisfaction level has been going down over the last three years. So if nothing else, it should signal that we at least need to change the conversation in terms of how we're framing it uh, on a wide range of things, whether it's policies on guns, whether it's uh, dealing with immigration and the border, whether it's regulatory and taxes, whether it's our military strength or the position of women in the nation. Uh, Satisfaction is, is not a good indicator there. So that's, of course, a, a challenging assignment for the Biden administration because they've got to square that circle somehow in their messaging. And it is the area where the Biden administration has struggled the most uh, because they believe they have policies that are making things better. And in some areas, they are making it better. The problem is it's not congruent. It's not in alignment with what the American people are actually feeling at home and in their communities. And so you, if nothing else, you at least have to change the conversation in terms of how you're talking about it. Can't just tout the economy when the vast majority of Americans are not satisfied with what's happening in the economy. So you got to figure out how do you, how do you meet the people where they are and how do you change that conversation? So I think it's a really interesting look as always from Gallup. Uh, And again, they do this every year. Uh, Now we're looking at a complete set between January of 2021 to January of 2024. uh, And there's a big gap in terms of that satisfaction level. 
And I think whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, or maybe it's an independent group that figures out how to talk to the American people, not at them, not down toward them, but listen to them on these areas of dissatisfaction could actually change the conversation and lead the country in a different direction. Uh, That's the conversation we have to get to. uh, And it's important that it all begins not by talking, but by actually listening to the American people. Think again on Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason on Inside Sources. Of course, Congress is out of town this week, recess week. Congress will return next week, and they have just a few things they need to get done. Uh, And I'm not talking about uh, aid to Ukraine or to Israel or to deal with Taiwan, Uh, not talking about the border and uh, security and immigration. No, we're right back where we said we would be. We are only eight days away from March the 1st. And in case it has slipped your mind, uh, we are once again uh, looking at another shutdown showdown in Congress uh, as time runs out to fund the government, about half the government Uh, has a deadline on March the 1st. The other uh, portion uh, is March the 8th. Uh, Either way, it's coming rapidly, and the options are already being limited uh, and negotiated behind closed doors. Uh, So to help us navigate the next round of the shutdown showdown, Eric Boehm, of course, is a reporter at Reason, covers economic policy, trade policy, and elections, and always helps us get behind the scenes to figure out what's really going on. And Eric, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, boy. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> and sadly, we are stuck on Groundhog Day when it comes to government funding. Uh, we're having a hard time getting out of that model of uh, the next round of shutdown showdown. So just tee it up for our listeners. Uh, what are you keeping your eye on as we look at this next round? Again, we kind of have this two-tiered thing that Speaker Johnson has put in uh, into place uh, with a deadline on the 1st of March and then one on the 8th. Yeah, that's right. And of course, Congress does have that extra day this year. We've got leap day, right? Uh, February 29th. So, that's right. you know, maybe extra that extra day. 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, maybe some magic can happen in, the, in that extra 24 hours. But uh, no, I mean, I think you set it up really well there at the top of the segment that it's, you know, there really is just a limited amount of time. Uh, the, the, you know, the question of whether I think the, the question at this point really becomes uh, whether there's going to be some sort of big omnibus bill. Uh, maybe not by March 1st, but sometime in early March, maybe a, a very short continuing resolution uh, to kind of tee up that omnibus bill, um, or whether there might be a, a longer term continuing resolution and another attempt to kind of uh, kick these deadlines down the road, as we've seen a, a couple of times already. There was, of course, one of those in September uh, at the start of the fiscal year, another one in November, and now, you know, that brought us to uh, to March so I think it's it's kind of one of those two possibilities will happen. You know, we're not going to see a, a full budget passed or anything like that in the next few days. No, that would be radical stuff. Not to mention the fact that they should be working on the next year's <laughs> process. That's what they should yeah. be focused on right now. Uh, but there are like miles and miles away from that. But I forgot about, uh, you know, February 29th. Maybe the unicorns will come uh, and solve all the budget problems this year on the 29th of February because we don't get that very often. Uh, but but talk to me a little bit about some of the things that are emerging. You alluded to maybe a longer term solution. Uh, we know going back to last year and some of the deals that were cut, one of them had an across the board 1% spending cut. Break that down for us. And is that likely to be part 
uh, of how maybe conservatives, the Freedom Caucus in particular in the House, uh, can swallow a little bit longer continuing resolution. Yeah, there are a lot of moving parts here, and that that 1% across the board cut is kind of looming in the background. I'll get to that in a second. Let's start with, uh, you know, I think you make a good point there uh, with your last question that, you know, really what we're talking about here is we're talking about the current fiscal year budget, right? The current fiscal year started on October 1st uh, for people who don't, like, pay a lot of attention to the way Washington works. That's where we are. We're already six months into, or we will be six months into the fiscal year, uh, or five months, I guess, uh, at the end of February. Um, so that's, you know, yeah, Congress is, is at this point well behind that deadline. And as you said, really, at this point, should be working on the next fiscal year budget. Uh, the House has so far passed seven of the 12 appropriation bills. And uh, that's that's somewhat of an accomplishment, actually, because that even that number doesn't usually get achieved yeah. uh, in a single year. There's been this push by Republicans in the House to kind of try to nudge things back to so-called normal order or regular order where the where the house the, the whole congress would pass these appropriations bills one by one allow them to go through a committee process allow them to do you know the schoolhouse rock style of like passing these bills and actually uh figuring out what should be funded and what shouldn't be funded within the the purview of each of those 12 different appropriations vehicles. Uh, That, of course, has not been the way things have worked in Congress for a long time. You have to go back to the 1990s to find the last time that process actually played out the way it's supposed to. Instead, we always get these, you know, you roll a bunch of those bills together. Sometimes you roll all of them together into an omnibus and you pass that and then it's a simple up or down vote. And it really just doesn't allow for a lot of the the process that's supposed to play out in budget making. So there's been this effort by House Republicans, by members of the Freedom Caucus in particular, to kind of return to that process, that step-by-step normal order. Um, And they want to to still get to that point. And so now I think there's some concern amongst that group that that we may see a big omnibus bill or something like that come down the pike next week or in, in one of the next few weeks. Uh, and that will blow away a lot of the work that they've been doing behind the scenes to try and get the House back to doing things the way it should be, the way it should be doing it. Yeah, that, uh, that I know regular order is a radical concept these days uh, in Congress, but I, I think we have to get back to that at some point. And I think that's a any nudge towards that. I don't care who it comes from is a good thing in my book. Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, this uh, this spending cut portion of it that has yeah. uh, both sides kind of up in arms. It has the more conservative members <laughs> saying, hey, you know, we got to at least have some kind of cut. And then you've got some on the other side of the aisle who are saying you don't want to cut anything. They want to add things into a big omnibus bill uh, because that's the easiest way to tuck some of that spending uh, into places where not everybody's aware of it. Uh, give us a sense of how that might play out. Yeah, so that's the pendulum that's hanging over this whole process, right, or the uh, the sword of Damocles that's hanging over this entire process is that back uh, last year, your listeners probably remember we had that big fight over the debt ceiling last year and the debt limit. And uh, and as a result of, of that deal, there were discretionary spending cuts that were agreed to. And this same group of Republicans in the House who want to see normal order restored, they were able to get a provision into the debt ceiling law, the debt ceiling increase bill that said, uh, OK, if Congress doesn't finish the appropriations process by the end of April, so May for April 30th, May 1st, uh, then there will be an across the board cut of 1% to every program in the government. And that's meant to be a, you know, that's meant to be exactly what it is, <laughs> this thing that's hanging over the whole process to force people to come to the table, to force people to negotiate. So uh, 
that provision being in there is going to make it very difficult for many Democrats uh, to to vote for a long term continuing resolution that takes us past that April 30th mm. deadline because they don't want to see the spending cuts. Uh, but on the other hand, it's going to make it, you know, it's going to make it very difficult, I think, for Speaker Johnson to cobble together the, the necessary. He, he probably needs to reach across the aisle if he wants to do uh, any sort of, of omnibus bill because he's not going to have support not enough support, at least from within his own caucus, the margins in the House obviously being as thin as they are right now, Republicans have a very small majority. Um, so, yeah, there's, as I said, there's a lot of moving parts here. And uh, and this all, unfortunately, is being negotiated kind of behind uh, behind closed doors at the moment. We'll have a better sense, I think, next week once Congress gets back of exactly how it's going to play out. Uh, I don't have any guesses at the moment, but there are there's there's a bunch of interesting dynamics happening here. Uh, and I think whatever does happen next week will really shape the, the future of of Speaker Johnson, yeah. of uh, of his you know term in office. Yeah. And it will also probably uh, indicate whether this this bigger project about returning Congress to normal order or to something resembling normal order. Uh, whether that project is going to succeed or fail. Yeah, uh, great perspective. We will have you back next week, uh, maybe even on uh, the 29th, just to see if, in case the unicorns do come, I want you to be here for it. Uh, So uh, we'll break that down in terms of what happens, what is happening behind closed doors, I think, of course, is the big issue. And I think Eric got it spot on as it relates to Speaker Johnson. I think this will be a very determinative week uh, in terms of his future as speaker. And then all of this juxtaposed into the 2024 election cycle. And remember, they not only have to do this, but September 30th will come. We know that will come in the fall, which means that's when they've got to have things done for the next fiscal year. There's a whole lot to be done. We'll continue to watch it. Uh, Eric, thanks as always. Great perspective. We'll have you back next week to see how this begins to play out. Yeah, and you know, there's the border bill and the Ukraine bill and all that other stuff that you talked about, too. There's a few other important things going on. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be crazy. But uh, thanks, boy. We'll talk again soon. All right. Uh, Eric Babe always takes us behind the scenes and helps us get an understanding. There are so many moving parts and players, as he mentioned. Uh, We'll continue to track all of it and help you connect the dots and make the news make sense. We'll step aside for bottom of the hour news. More inside sources coming up next. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's Voice of Reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Well, as we continue the conversation here on Inside Sources, of course, in the last segment, we were talking about the process that is staring down uh, Congress, another shutdown showdown, which usually leads to a fake fight, a whole bunch of false choices, and more big spending without regular order. Uh, and that's actually how you get $34 trillion in debt. We often talk about conflict in Washington. Uh, it's collusion that's usually the problem. Uh, you can't rack up $34 trillion through conflict. Uh, it's both sides have to agree. And so you can be equal opportunity offender across the board, across parties, across administrations. Uh, it is big. It is hefty. Uh, and then the real challenge is now that we're $34 trillion in debt and counting, everyone likes to go to this idea of magic thinking uh, and that the unicorns will come in and that everything's going to work out just fine. Uh, And it just doesn't work that way. Dollars and cents are pretty stubborn things. And so we're going to get into some of that magic thinking and maybe some reality thinking as well. Uh, Dominic Pino's uh, the Thomas L. Rhodes Fellow at the National Review Institute, had a great piece in National Review 
uh, talking about former President Trump uh, and some of that magic thinking of, hey, we can just drill and uh, it's going to take care of our $34 trillion in debt. Uh, Dominic, welcome to the show. Hey, Boyd, thanks for having me. Hey, let's start with uh, first just the proposal. What is it that the former president is saying in terms of uh, where we are and uh, how we how we get ourselves out of that big hole? Well, obviously, with the former president, uh, it's sometimes difficult to take him a little too seriously about some of the things he says. But he has said this on multiple occasions, and so I think it's worth uh, bringing up that uh, he believes that through uh, drilling for more oil, that will help us to raise more revenue and pay off the national debt and cut taxes. Uh, he has said this, he said it most notably in his uh, victory speech after the Iowa caucuses, but he has said this in interviews with Sean Hannity and uh, a couple other places as well. And so let's dig into what that really would be. And again, I don't care where people fall politically uh, because we, we point this out on both left and right. This, this magic thinking uh, sounds great. It works at a, it works at a uh, political rally. It's a nice bumper sticker, uh, but it just doesn't work. And so just kind of walk us through what is the magic thinking of this particular proposal and why is it that it just doesn't add up? Well, the most important thing is that in the United States, uh, oil companies are, are private. Uh, we do not have a state-owned oil company in the United States like a lot of other countries do. And so uh, the private profits of oil companies belong to them. Uh, of course, they have to pay corporate taxes just like every other corporation does. Um, but uh, you know, that that is not something that's going to in any way take the money that they are uh, receiving from 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 drilling for more oil. The U.S. debt, as you mentioned in the intro, is thirty four trillion dollars. Uh, if we somehow by magic, again, this isn't possible, but somehow by magic, we we extracted the entire proven reserve of the United States crude oil, which is forty one billion barrels. If we extracted all of that. We sold it for double the price of oil uh, for the average price of oil last year. It would raise about $6.4 trillion. So <laughs> it's completely impossible. <laughs> and even if it was possible, it would come nowhere close to covering national debt. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And, and so this kind of thinking is, is often where we get stuck, especially in presidential election years. Uh, but talk to us just uh, as you look at things like this, and, and clearly there's a, a role to play in energy independence, and all of those are, are separate issues. Uh, but as you look at this kind of thinking, how is it that we get the conversation to a different place where we can say, okay, this could be one area that could be helpful, uh, and we have a list of a whole bunch of other things that are going to have to take place if we're actually going to be serious? Because I think most of our conversations about deficits, even just the deficit portion, let alone the $34 trillion of actual debt, uh, I just think it's completely unserious these days in our nation's capital. It totally is. And we ran a $2 trillion deficit yet last year, which was the largest deficit in absolute dollars uh, that we've ever had, um, one of the largest as a percentage of GDP that we've ever had. And that was in a year where we had no, no foreign wars, no domestic emergencies, no new major spending programs. And we still came up $2 trillion short. And so this is a problem that's only going to get worse. In 2025, we're facing about a $5 trillion fiscal cliff because in 2025, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the individual provisions of that expire. Uh, a bunch of contract authority from the infrastructure bill expires. Um, a bunch of uh, uh, Obamacare subsidies expire. And so we're, we have a huge 
uh, a huge cliff coming at the end of 2025 that whoever wins the next election is going to have to deal with right away in their first year in office. And they're totally unprepared to do it. And uh, when we have, you know, uh, one 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 party's candidate, uh, Joe Biden, is responsible for adding trillions to the debt. He would add even more if he had gotten Build Back Better passed like he wanted. Uh, and then we have the other candidate, Donald Trump, who's talking about paying it off with oil. And it's just completely unserious uh, on both sides on this issue. Yeah. OK, you, you, you snapped my head just a little bit on this five trillion fiscal cliff at the end of 2025. Uh, we've been talking about a lot of the other cliffs that we're headed towards. Uh, just unpack that one for us real quickly in terms of what is it that adds into that uh, five trillion and why nobody's talking about that portion of the program. Absolutely. The uh, like I said, this is no matter who wins, they're going to have to deal with this in their very first their very first year in office. Um, it becomes uh, it, it shows up because the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the individual proportions from that, those are the, the Trump tax cuts commonly known. Uh, those had expiration dates in them. So a lot of them will expire in, in 2025. So the entire uh, so so if Congress does nothing, taxes would go way up. Uh, but they're not likely to do nothing. They're likely to keep the tax cuts in place because raising taxes is very unpopular. Uh, so that'll cost about $3 trillion just for that. At the same time as that, uh, there was, uh, uh, under Obamacare, there are subsidies to households making up to 400% of the federal poverty line. Now, mm. that, that, those subsidies are supposed to, be, uh, supposed to be restricted to lower than that, but they were expanded above that as part of the American Rescue Plan Act that Joe Biden passed. Uh, those, uh, that, that, that deadline also comes in 2025. And so there's going to be uh, a shortfall there. That is another big issue. The infrastructure bill has a bunch of contract authority that's going to expire. And all those contractors are going to come to DC and ask for more money because guess what? When you dump a trillion dollars into one industry, you get inflation. And so we've had huge inflation in the infrastructure sector, which means that a lot of projects cost more than they were expected to cost. So in order to finish them, contractors are going to need more money and politicians are going to have a hard time saying no because they want to show off the shiny new bridges and highways in their districts that they that they wanted to have and so if you add up all those things together and a a couple other things as well we're looking at five trillion dollars uh that's probably going to be uh probably going to be added to the debt at the end of 2025 yeah we've got to get past the unserious ideas the magic thinking and get to the serious conversations dominic thanks so much for joining us dominic pino thomas l rhodes fellow at national review institute great piece at national review check that out as well we'll step aside we'll be right back more inside sources Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason on Inside Sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today. As always, I am Boyd Matheson. And of course, we used to always believe in this idea of innocent until proven guilty. Uh, Now we may be entering the twilight zone of guilty until you can prove that you're not a criminal in the future. I know that might be a bit of a head scratcher, uh, but that is where we've been heading. And there's some very fascinating things going on in our nation's capital uh, as it relates to kind of the preemptive strike, preemptive criminal fingerprinting. 
And uh, we're going to break all of that down and uh, take a good hard look at that. J.D. Tuchili, of course, is the contributing editor at Reason, Reason Magazine, Reason.com. And uh, J.D., this is uh, this one caught my attention. This was a we're doing what? <laughs> uh, you got some you yeah, got some senators talking about uh, what we are and aren't funding. But tell us what we've been funding funding when it comes to preemptive preemptive criminal fingerprinting. Yeah, this is a weird one. It's it's a field called predictive policing, and it's kind of a real-life implementation of the movie Minority Report, if anybody remembers yeah. that science fiction movie about you know predicting the future, who might be a criminal to come, and who's going to, uh, who's going to commit what crimes in the future. This is an effort to actually do that instead of using you know mind readers and, and, and uh, telepathy to instead use uh, computers and algorithms. You, you feed in data. You put in risk factors, and they're supposed to spit out who's at risk for being a criminal and the kind of crimes that they might commit in the future. And if you if you're already seeing some potential dangers in that, you're probably ahead of the game, you know, relative to the Department of Justice, because it's dangerous. You start fingering people for crimes that they have not committed, but that your computer says they will do in the future. And you could put people on the spot and put their life and their liberty at risk. And this is what some U.S. senators pointed out. They wrote to the Department of Justice and said, you know what, these these programs are already being implemented around the country. They're kind of turning scary. They're committing some civil rights violations. And since they're funded by the federal government, the Department of Justice, these senators and, um, and a representative asked the government to stop funding these programs until there's some um, investigation into whether these can be respectful of civil rights and civil liberties and whether they can be rendered accurate at all, whether the government's even going to look into that before it cuts the next check. Yeah, that, that is fascinating. Uh, this idea of pre-cataloging people who might be statistically more likely to commit a crime, according to the data that the federal government has put into the system. Uh, And of course, that can lead, as you alluded to, to all kinds of racial profiling, discrimination. Uh, You can have all kinds of things that that could be factoring in there. Uh, And so, first of all, this is a uh, the biggest red flag that came up for me was the fact that this is continuing Funding. So we've been doing this for a little while, exploring this out. Tell us where we actually are in this process, and then we'll take a look at uh, what happens next. Yeah, this isn't just a bad idea that the government's kicking around. This is something they started implementing and funding 15 years ago, and it's in place around the country. There was a program um, in Pasco County, Florida. They actually implemented predictive policing. They started um, you know, uh, running the data on members of the community, and then they would send police out to hassle them based upon their assessment as being at risk of committing crimes that they had not yet committed. Um, one of the a former deputy in Pasco County said that the the point of the program was to make their lives miserable until they either move or sue. And in fact, a lot of them did sue. The Institute for Justice is representing a bunch of them. It's working its way through the courts. And last year, Pasco County insisted in court documents that it's it's dropped the program. It's no longer uh, doing predictive policing um, as an effort 
effort, obviously, to he- try to head off more lawsuits. But already you've got people saying the civil liberties are violated by these programs. And in fact, when this same group of uh, some of the senators who asked the government to stop funding these programs, when they asked the Department of Justice to say, OK, how do you assess these programs? We're over a decade into this now. Um, where do we stand? The Department of Justice couldn't even answer how many programs was funding, let alone say, and we've looked at them and they either do or don't pose a threat to civil liberties. They were just throwing money at programs and ending up with Pasco County, Florida's. Wow. Uh, that is that is stunning that we've been that we're a decade into this whole thing uh, that nobody can really say that one, does this even work? Is it <laughs> I mean, let's get into all of the legal ramifications, the civil liberties and, and all of those things uh, wrapped into that. Uh, but the fact that nobody can even say what it is or, or whether it's making any difference, uh, I, I think, is uh, is another big challenge of it as well. So so what is likely to happen next? You've got this group of senators saying, hey, not so fast, my friends. Maybe we shouldn't be funding this kind of work. Uh, what do you see happening and what is likely to happen next? Well, there's enough lawmakers who are concerned about it at this point that they've stopped asking questions and started asking that the money dry up. Mm. And there are lawsuits now generated by the real-life implementation of this. So I think what's going to happen is that predictive policing is going to be on people's radar more. It's going to re- it's going to withdraw out more and more legal responses, and it's going to have to be dealt with as a real problem because it is violating civil liberties. Um, it is not being assessed for effectiveness, let alone its impact on people's uh, civil rights, and it's it's causing great difficulties, uh, just kind of rumbling along without anybody at the wheel. So um, I, th- I think we're going to see at least some response to this, and hopefully they'll rein it in a little bit. Um, Fingers crossed. Sometimes it's the best you can hope for with the government. We, we've been dealing, J.D., with a lot of magic thinking today. So we have we have some magic thinking that's going on in terms of how we're going to fund the government before uh, March 1st and March 8th, uh, let alone the fact that we also need to fund the next year, which starts uh, at the end of September in an election year. We've also had magic thinking in terms of the $34 trillion that we're currently in debt. And, of course, the uh, former president is saying, hey, we'll just drill oil and, and that will cover it. That's one more version of magic thinking in terms of how we solve it. Uh, I think this predictive policing is is another area of not just magic thinking. I think it is misaligned and uh, fraught with all kinds of disasters kind of thinking. Uh, and so maybe it is magic thinking week uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, thanks for helping us navigate it. And uh, we'll continue to track this one because this one gets really scary to me uh, the further we go down that path. Hopefully the funding there will actually dry up. J.D., thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. J.D. Ticilli, former managing editor of Reason, current contributing editor, Reason, Reason Magazine, Reason.com. Uh, you can always look to his writing. It is always crisp. Uh, it is deep dive, uh, and it will help you connect the dots on these kinds of things. I had no idea we had this whole idea of predictive policing, uh, that we're going we're gonna to fingerprint it and get in a database based on the input that we put in that may tell us that there's a chance they're saying there's a chance that you may commit a crime 10 years from now. So we're going to get you in the system. So when you do commit that crime 10 years from now, we're going to have your fingerprints so we can haul you in. Uh, and again, there are so many civil liberties. There's so many uh, different components of this that are just wildly off the charts. Uh, clearly will not hold up in court to be sure. Uh, will trigger all kinds of lawsuits. And yet we've been funding it and we're anticipating funding it again. And good work uh, by some of the members of the House and the Senate to raise the flag and say, wait a minute, let's think again about what we're actually doing. 
and hopefully those that have uh, raised the alarm bells uh, and called for these uh, programs, these uh, predictive and preemptive policing systems to not be funded moving forward. That is just a disaster waiting to happen. Uh, and it sounds like in a few places where they've tested it, the disaster has actually come. Uh, and the lawsuits have been filed. Civil liberties have been violated. There's been uh, discrimination. Uh, that's not how you go about this. Again, nice magic thinking in terms of how we're going to beat criminals to the punch. And uh, it's sort of like pre-arresting them. Uh, so I'm going to make my predictive, not predictive policing. I'm just going to make my prediction that predictive and preemptive policing uh, is going to fail miserably. Uh, and I hope it doesn't get funded this time around. Uh, that is should not be part of the way we do business here in the United States of America. That's just not the way it works. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up our hour number one of Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. We are going to go ahead and step aside for some top of the hour news, but don't go anywhere. We're going to have a big hour number two coming up, including taking a look at an important event that took place in our nation's capital, actually at the National Cathedral last night, including Utah's Governor Spencer Cox, along with the Governor of Maryland, Wes Moore, and others as we look at a different kind of conversation coming out of our nation's capital. We'll take you there to some really interesting insight coming up next on Inside Sources. Stick around. KSL FM Midvale. KSL Salt Lake City. From the KSL Common Spirit Health Studios. This is KSL News Radio. Utah's news, traffic, and weather station. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's voice of reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. As we continue to look at our very polarized and often poisonous politics in this country, as we've been talking on this show uh, for years now, going back to 2020, we've been talking about disagreeing differently, disagreeing better, disagreeing respectfully, and getting to an elevated, different kind of conversation. Well, last night in our nation's capital, that was put to the test in a new way. You had a Republican and a Democrat, both governors, uh, along with some politicos like Donna Brazile and uh, Kennedy clan uh, Tim Shriver, an activist, along with a host of others, uh, walked into the National Cathedral last night and started a conversation that I think should change the conversation when it comes to how we disagree in the country. Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Last night was a fascinating event in the National Cathedral, a historic and majestic place to hold any kind of event. Uh, and big kudos uh, to friend of the show and former D.C. Circuit Judge uh, Thomas Griffith, uh, who was really the driving force uh, in bringing all of these people together. And uh, it was noted several times during the course of the evening that the reason everyone showed up was because Judge Griffith asked them to. Uh, that speaks volumes in terms of the relationships that he has developed across the political spectrum uh, and into so many places to help change the dialogue in the country. The event was a really unique uh, partnership with the Wheatley Institute at Brigham Young University, Wesley Theological Seminary, and of course it was sponsored uh, by Deseret Magazine. And uh, Governor Cox and the governor of the state of Maryland, Wes Moore, 
uh, really kicked things off with a, a fascinating conversation back and forth as the two talked about things that were working, things that they were worried about in their respective states and in the country, and how whether it was uh, Governor Moore looking at it from a more democratic perspective or, or Governor Cox looking at it uh, from the political right, how the models of conversation can bring us to a different place in the conversation. So uh, let's start with the the governor of Maryland, Wes Moore. Again, they're sitting in this majestic national cathedral uh, last night, and uh, Wes Moore began, Governor Moore began, by describing why uh, he was part of this conversation and initiative. I don't believe, I, I, you can't claim to love the country if you hate half of the people in it. And so the idea of disagree better, the idea of being able to say, we actually have an opportunity to have genuine debates and disagreements that we're not going to, you know, there are things that we fundamentally disagree on and that's okay. Yet at the same time, how we do it, how we engage, how we choose to work together, that matters because it still comes down to, do you see and understand the humanity of the person that is sitting next to you? Uh, During the discussion, Governor Moore complimented Utah on some very uh, interesting components. He said uh, everything from the lowest child poverty rate in the country, uh, something that he's trying to do and change in the state of Maryland. Uh, Governor Cox talked about uh, how these kinds of things get achieved in the state and how the uh, private efforts uh, are really essential, not just government, in terms of creating resilient communities. I tell companies when they relocate to Utah and we give them, you know, a tax incentive to do that, a post-performance tax incentive, um, I I say this, look, we're excited. We want you to come to Utah, but you need to know something. If you're coming here, uh, you have a duty to give back and we expect you to give back. In fact, I I released an executive order um, just last year that requires every company uh, who gets a tax incentive in Utah, they're required now to give volunteer hours in their community if they want that tax incentive. They have to give back. Uh, for the very reasons that you mentioned, we know that that builds community, it solves problems, and it depolarizes our country. That was a really interesting point for me during the course of the conversation was how both of these governors talked about what happens when we come together in service. When you do service in the community, the polarization goes down. Why? Because if you're standing shoulder to shoulder with somebody with a shovel or working at a food pantry or a soup kitchen, uh, when you're doing that kind of work together, uh, nobody's asking who you voted for for president. No one's uh, debating whatever the the hot social topic is uh, of the day. Uh, You're doing things that make a difference, and so that polarization goes down. Uh, the, Mar- the Maryland governor, Wes Moore, uh, he actually passed a bill uh, in the state of Maryland that guaranteed service opportunities for young people, for students. And he talked about why this is such a high priority in his state. And there was a few big reasons why we were working to prioritize it. One is I'm a big believer in experiential learning. And particularly for our young people, if you give them an opportunity to find that thing that can help to explore their interests, and give them a pathway to do it, it's not just going to change them. It'll change the trajectory of their family. So important, that uh, change of trajectory. And I love the fact that they were talking about some real policy initiatives uh, that are good public policy, but also have this added benefit of bringing people together and diffusing some of the politics-as-usual stuff that we're all exhausted and exasperated by. 
Now, the governor of Maryland uh, went a little deeper on this whole idea of service, saying that the generation of young people who learn how to serve together, they're the ones who are actually going to save the country and re-strengthen our society. Service is sticky, and those who serve together will stay together. And in this time of political divisiveness and political vitriol, and where people seem to care more about where the idea come from than is it a good idea, I believe that service will save us. Service will save our society. Because if we can be a state that gets to know each other again, if we can be a state that serves together, if we can be a state where people find an opportunity to explore different parts of the state that they did not know about, or meet people that they had not, they would have never had the opportunity to get to know. It'll change their perspective about what is their contribution and what is the potential contribution of the person on the other side of town. I love that. Service is sticky. Uh, It does create sticky relationships and connections that form that connective tissue that we have to have to have strong communities and strong countries. And so it all begins with that, and it will start with those young people. So I love that both our Governor Spencer Cox and also the Governor of Maryland, Wes Moore, uh, are talking about interesting ways that the byproduct of this kind of good policy is that it actually helps build society and breaks down some of those barriers, breaks down a lot of the misunderstandings, gets rid of a lot of the contempt and hate and anger and frustration Uh, Because that's the thing that brings us together. It's sticky. Service is sticky. Uh, And that's why we do need that if we're going to stick together as a country. Well, we're going to stay with the conversation from last night. Again, it was an extraordinary event taking place at the National Cathedral in our nation's capital, uh, really brought together uh, by our good friend, uh, Judge Thomas Griffith, uh, and those at the Wheatley Institute, along with Wesley Theological Seminary, uh, sponsored by Deseret Magazine. And we're going to stay with that conversation because I think it matters. And when we come back, we're going to get into some of the exchange with ABC's Donna Brazil, longtime Democratic strategist Tim Shriver, uh, of course, uh, who's been a, an activist, part of the Dignity End Index and a host of other things, uh, along with some other great thinkers who are trying to help all of us change the course and the context of our conversations, not just in our nation's capital, but across the country. We'll be right back. Think again on Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Get deeper insights on the news from Inside Sources. We're staying with the conversation from an important conversation that took place at the National Cathedral in our nation's capital last night. It was titled, With Malice Toward None and with Charity for All. As we mentioned before, it was uh, really navigated and orchestrated uh, by a good friend of the show, uh, former D.C. Circuit Court Judge uh, Thomas Griffith, uh, brought together an amazing group, including the governor of the state of Utah, Spencer Cox, the governor of Maryland, Democrat Wes Moore, uh, along with uh, just an amazing group of panelists that we're going to get to in just a second. Uh, I'm actually going to have a a deep dive conversation with uh, Judge Thomas uh, coming up for uh, Sunday edition on KSL TV. You can check that out 9 a.m. on Sunday. We'll do a deep dive on the whole conversation and behind the scenes conversations from uh, the event with Malice Toward None and Charity for All. Uh, So I want to get into some of these other panelists and uh, what they had to add to this conversation because uh, I found it uh, very fascinating last night, a very informative conversation. 
in terms of where we are and how we can do this a little bit different. One of those on the panel there at the National Cathedral was Dr. Ruth uh, Okedeji, a Harvard Law professor, and uh, Governor Cox interviewed her as part of this panel discussion, and she talked about the importance of older generations and their role to make sure they lead the way to show the younger people that today's current political climate is not the way things have always been. I think it's really important for us, and certainly our generation, you've made this point, that if we don't model what it means to love your enemies, to love your neighbors, to be your brother's keeper, your sister's keeper, that we are raising a generation that will not know anything but the current political moment as the norm. And that's a problem. When I speak to my students, I don't speak to them about covering their disagreements or even hiding who they are. But I tell them that their ability to honor the dignity of every person that they encounter requires them to develop the art of listening to what the other person has to say. I love that, honoring the dignity of the other person in your conversation, especially if it's a disagreement. You don't have to agree with them, but you have to honor the dignity, even the divinity uh, that is in that other person. Dr. Ruth Akedaji, again, Harvard Law professor, she went on to talk about strategies and some of the topics she uses with her students there at Harvard to promote disagreement while fostering the kind of humility that leads to compassion in our conversations. When we hear from one another, I, I, I quote to them all the time about iron sharpens iron. And when you teach in a competitive environment, anything that gets them to be better is always a win. And I encourage them that your best arguments come not from practicing or thinking or regurgitating the things that you already know and believe, but by hearing a perspective that you may be too blind to see. And that not only produces humility, but it also produces a capacity for compassion. And I think humility and compassion are essential to our capacity to improve and to really bring about a revival in our political system today. One of the most delightful segments of the program at the National Cathedral last night uh, was when former chairwoman of the Democratic National Committee, uh, Donna Brazil, uh, you recognize her. She's been a longtime political commentator. She was a campaign manager for Al Gore in his presidential run. Uh, and then she's developed this fascinating, uh, important relationship with George Bush uh, after Hurricane Katrina. Uh, so I want you to listen carefully. This was just a delightful segment of the the event last night at the, the National Cathedral and it gave me some really interesting insight into what really makes Donna Brazil tick and why thick relationships that come from serving together really do matter in this country and transcend our politics. And so I found myself in a position where I knew people in the Bush administration. And rather than go on national TV and offer criticisms, I went on national TV and I basically said, Mr. President, how can I help you? And I had no idea that for over three years I would sit in Bush White House more than I had ever sat in Bill Clinton's White House. I was a kid who could go to President Bush and say, we need to fix the levees and rebuild the schools and bring people back home. And to this day, he's, he calls me one of the most expensive dates that ever came through the White House. <laughs> and I call him my president. 
on the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. I flew down to Louisiana on Air Force One. President Obama said, are you coming with me? I said, yes, sir. I'm going to start the morning off with you in the Ninth Ward in downtown. And then I'm going to welcome President and Mrs. Bush to my hometown. And they came. Nobody booed. We played the music. The president did his best dance. <laughs> and I look forward, if God allows me, during the 20th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina next year, to bring both my presidents back home because we've made a lot of progress. As former uh, chairwoman of the Democratic National Committee, Donna Brazile, uh, and a lot of people recognize her uh, as someone who's been involved in a lot of really tough political conversations over the years, uh, particularly on cable news. Uh, but I think it's so important that we go back and we recognize that. Uh, I love the fact that Donna Brazil pointed out that even though uh, she'd been part of the Democratic machine for so many years, that she ended up, after Hurricane Katrina, spending more time in the George W. Bush White House uh, than she did when Bill Clinton was in the White House. And that they had this friendship. They had this connection. Why? Because they served together, because they were both focused on Louisiana and the people of Louisiana. And what could they do together? What could they do together to make it better and to make a difference for the citizens, not for the politicians, not for the parties, but for the people? Uh, that's a great model. Uh, and I love the way she framed that in the context of the, the anniversary, the 10th anniversary, uh, that she was there uh, both with the Obamas and with the Bushes. Uh, and uh, hopefully that will happen again. But those are the kinds of friendships that we don't hear nearly enough about in our divisive political realms. But those are the kinds of friendships that change the nation because they change individuals. I want to go to uh, some comments from our, our friend Tim Schreiber, also a good friend of the show. Uh, he's uh, spoken a lot about the Dignity Index and their organization uh, with Ignite. And uh, he talked about some of the things, and this was a really interesting component to me. Of course, in his family, growing up in the Kennedy household, everything was about politics, a lot of conversations about politics. But they could see the people in the midst of that. Both Governor Cox uh, and Governor Moore talked about growing up in kind of non-political families where they, they didn't know the politics of their neighbors or those in their community. Uh, but how all of that, it's how we see the people, not the political party, that can make the big difference. It's not just a background noise question. It's not just a, a relationship issue. It's a new issue that is blocking the actual fabric of the country, stopping us from solving problems, dividing our families. You'll see data in a few days. Over 30% of Americans have ended a relationship in their own family as a function of political contempt and, and demonization. It's not that they disagree. It's that they demonize the person they disagree with. Again, just a, an extraordinary event. If you've missed that, you can actually go online. Just go to the National Cathedral YouTube channel, and you can check out this forum with Malice Toward None, with Charity for All. Again, uh, Governor Spencer Cox uh, playing a lead role last night in that forum and that discussion with his Democratic colleague, Governor of Maryland, Wes Moore, uh, along with Donna Brazil, uh, Rachel Brand, uh, legal scholar Ruth uh, Okedeji that we just listened to from Harvard, along with Tim Shriver, a friend of the show. Uh, all of that coming together for a different kind of conversation and a very Utah model being taken to our nation's capital with the Wheatley Institute from Brigham Young University, Wesley Theological Seminary, 
uh, coming together as part of that uh, and a great thing and a great place. Uh, It is such a majestic setting to have that kind of conversation. We need to replicate that. We need to duplicate that across the country because if we celebrate those kind of conversations, I guarantee you we're going to get more of them and that'll be good for the country. All right, we'll step aside for some bottom of the hour news. More inside sources coming up next right here on KSL News Radio. Hear elevated conversation on crucial issues. Boyd Matheson on Inside Sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today. As always, I am Boyd Matheson. And as we round out the program today, Uh, Something always catches my eye as we go through the course of the day. And, of course, I've been keeping one eye towards March the 7th, which is when President Biden will deliver the State of the Union. Uh, That is an annual uh, undertaking. And sadly, it's turned into far more of a political rally than it is a State of the Union. Uh, It is supposed to be a State of the Union, by the way, not a State of the Government. Uh, And we'll take that on as we get a little closer uh, to March the 7th. I will do for the, uh, I think, 25th year in a row, do my own version of the State of the Union. So we'll have that coming up as we march towards March the 7th. Uh, In the interim, uh, someone has taken a a really amazing swing uh, at a different kind of speech, a uh, not a State of the Union, but a State of the Culture What is the state of the culture in America in 2024? Uh, This is a deep dive look uh, that you all should go read on uh, the Honest Broker Substack. Uh, Ted uh, Gioia uh, is uh, the author of it. He is a cultural critic. He's a music historian. He's a record producer. He's a jazz pianist. He's published 12 books, uh, all translated into nine different languages. Uh, And he is the author of the Substack newsletter, The Honest Broker. Uh, so he has some street cred when it comes to culture. And the thing that caught my attention today was he he started a conversation about his state of the culture, uh, talking about art and how we're losing that in the country. And sadly, how it's uh, not the problem we think it is, but it's actually much worse. So he framed it in this context that uh, that we often look at when it comes to art. Uh, that art has sort of been swallowed up by entertainment. Uh, And uh, he goes down this progression that goes from art to entertainment to distraction, ultimately to addiction uh, in our culture. And it's sort of the, why do you need Hamlet if you can just take a picture of your cheeseburger uh, and post that on your social media? You can get that dopamine hit and away you go. And so we're losing that ability to appreciate art and music and literature because everything is becoming so fast. And so I want to go down through this a little bit in, from this piece uh, on his Substack, The Honest Broker, uh, because I think this is instructive for us in terms of a lot of the things that we ought to be worrying about, a lot of the things that we ought to be thinking about when it comes to our culture. You've heard me say it on the show many, many times that culture leads, politicians will follow, but where is the culture going? And if we've lost our ability to think deeply, to observe, to experience awe and wonder and humility and curiosity, there's a whole host of things that follow. Uh, And a lot of it is because we have gone from the ability to appreciate and engage in art, again, whether that's actual art, music, literature, 
uh, to this entertainment space, uh, but that's going away as well. Uh, in fact, you can even look at a lot of the big entertainment companies uh, that are having some real trouble. Disney, Paramount, Universal, Warner Brothers, uh, all of those are having struggles in staying afloat and staying competitive because the market continues to change. Because we've gone from this entertainment space and now we've now we're in this space that he defines as distraction. And distraction is what we all experience on social media. It's an economy of distraction. Scrolling, swiping, doom scrolling, all of those things, TikTok, those are all things that are quick, distractive hits. And when that's all you engage in, it is actually the path to addiction. It's the same process. And he actually spells this out in the piece really well. You go from a stimulus and a distraction to this dopamine hit and release. And that, of course, gives you pleasure in your brain. And then you want more. And then you reinforce that with another stimulus, distraction, dopamine hit. And then suddenly you're forming a habit, which ultimately becomes an addiction. And Silicon Valley understands that. And they're profiting off of this addiction culture. So all of the platforms that used to be in charge of serving up some nice entertainment for us have gone from entertainment to distraction and now to addiction. So they're shifting to scrolling, reeling interfaces. That stimulus just keeps going. So the dopamine doom loop just keeps coming at you. And they don't want you to go anywhere else. Remember when you used to go through your your feed and you could say, oh, I want to go to that, and you'd click on it, and it would take you to another site. Well, they don't want that. That doesn't help their economic model. They want you to stay in the same space. So TikTok's going to serve up all the things based on the algorithms to keep you right there because they have to keep you on the site. They have to keep you in that algorithm. And the others are doing that as well. Apple, Facebook, everybody's playing along in the game. But the sad thing is, is the further we go down that path, the further we get from connection and the more we just get into this process. And it's sort of this path. Uh, If you took it from an athletic standpoint, really pointed out well in the uh, state of the culture uh, on uh, on this uh, platform today, talking about how you go from playing a sport to watching a sport to gambling on a sport. Gambling's very addictive. It's the dopamine hit that keeps you coming back and keeps you going. Journalism has gone down the same path. You go from newspaper, deep dive, investigative reporting, long form, to multimedia, serving it up all the quicker, and now it's just clickbait in a lot of spaces. Film and TV goes to just short videos, and now we just got reels, even shorter, to just keep it there. Music, you go from albums to tracks to TikTok. Uh, And on it goes. Uh, Even in our basic communication, you go from handwritten letters to just a voicemail, an email, or a memo, and now, you know, you've got just a a quick text. But it's all about that loop of keeping the dopamine hit going. And so when we wonder why we have so many social challenges in the country, uh, it's you don't have to look very far. The problem is no one's willing to really step up and say, we're getting it wrong. And we got to change the dynamic and we got to change the conversation around it. 
And so to me, until we can have that part of it, uh, we're going to get fewer hamlets. <laughs> we're going to get very few uh, real creative folks. We're going to get fewer real meaningful conversations, but we're going to get a lot of pictures of hamburgers, whatever you had for breakfast, and dogs tilting their heads in funny ways uh, because it will keep the dopamine hit the dopamine hit rolling and the doom scrolling continuing. But we've got to get to a different place. The state of the culture will ultimately determine the state of the union. But it starts with culture, and that starts with each one of us. All right, that wraps it up for us on Inside Sources today here on KSL News Radio. I'm Boyd Matheson. Thanks for joining us today. And as always, as you head out into the world, make sure you see something that inspires, say something that uplifts, and do something today that makes a difference. KSL FM Midvale. KSL Salt Lake City. From the KSL Common Spirit Health Studios. This is KSL News Radio. Utah's news, traffic, and weather station.